This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Hey, welcome everybody. I'm excited to welcome back to the show by far the most requested guest of all time. People cannot get enough of you, or maybe it's the chemistry betwixt us with our antics. TK Coleman, welcome back. I was hoping for an introduction where you'd be like the irreducible, the irreplaceable, the unbelievable. No, but that's it, good enough. Are you is are you back to your true self? <laughs> I have like three selves, depending on what the topic is. Well, we just recorded an episode of, <laughs> of uh, a forthcoming uh, podcast called Office Hours, where mm-hmm. um, TK and I talk about kind of professional questions that we get a lot and um, just sort of run down and give some thoughts. But this last episode, it was like I didn't know who I was talking with. TK brought this like announcer voice to the table. He was like, hey, Isaac Morehouse is here to give some thoughts now. So I'm glad you're back to your true self. All right. This is what I want to talk about today because you and I have done a ton of episodes where we just kind of talk about all kinds of stuff, ideas we have. Mm -hmm. But I actually want to talk about you. Not my favorite topic. I'd rather talk about me, but I figure <laughs> in the interest of, I want to talk about your career journey, especially because this is something that we haven't talked about. And I haven't heard you, you know, you give a lot of talks and things and I haven't heard you specifically really tell your professional story to very many people. And it's, it's a really, really cool story for a lot of reasons. And one that I think is informational and inspiring to a lot of people because it's one of these very unlikely, I described it to you yesterday. Like it's like a, like a scatter plot, you know, you see like the graph and the dots are everywhere and you're like, yeah, there's no arc here. You know, like like it doesn't look like there's some clear arc when you look at all of the individual things you've done, but clearly there is, there is a narrative. There is a story that, you know, has led you to make all these decisions. So I want to kind of walk through your story, um, primarily on the, on the professional side, you game. Oh, man, I'm absolutely game. And there is no arc. This is truly one of the dots connecting backwards, like ass backwards. This is why this is why when you tell like the Praxis origin story or like your own, you have so many different stories because you can just take you can just connect any of the dots in any order you want and be like, look, it's a it's a donkey. Oh, look, it's a square. You know, you can tell any story you want with your varied past. Well, let's start. I don't want to go like way, way back, back in the day, but just briefly before you left the nest of Chicago and went, uh, you know, to Kalamazoo and went to college as a kid, what kind of kid were you? And like, what did you think? Did you think about your sort of professional future? Did you think about what you wanted to do? I know your dad is a, a property owner, landlord, as well as a pastor. I know you're interested in sports and all these things. Your family called you Doc because you were always a heady guy and, and interested in ideas. How did you view yourself and what did you think you'd be doing sort of when you grew up? So, man, the the only career I thought about was being the next Michael Jordan. Like, that's the only serious thought I had about profession. That's a really sad story already. (laughs) We're already started. (laughs) Like, you started at the wrong part, man. (laughs) We're beginning with failed dreams. (laughs) This is going to be like one of those, like, Make-A-Wish Foundation where, like, when Michael Jordan's, like, 75, I'm going to get you out on the court with him. And he's going to be like, you're just as good as me, buddy. You're going to be a tearjerker. (laughs) 
It'll be a moment of healing. Uh, so, you know, man, it, start, it starts with my dad, who, who is a, a self-made real estate investor. Growing up, I, I never had a different concept of my, my dad. He was a guy that would always buy properties, flip them, or hold on to them and rent them out. And, and yes, he was a pastor as well. I never wanted to be a pastor, by the way, because I saw up close the demands and the stress involved with being a pastor. So I, I've always kind of had this belief that you got to be kind of crazy to want to be a pastor. But, but the one part of the pastoring that you did like was the drama. I, I always liked the drama. <laughs> I always liked the drama. <laughs> Sorry, the, I'll, the, I'll quit interrupting. Okay, no promises. I'll try the, to quit the, interrupting so much. Go ahead. The black preacher cadence forever remains with me. Um, but you know, so you, you could say that I inherited from my dad this entrepreneurial spirit, this this creative spirit, but my gosh, I don't think it ever looked obvious at any point. I, I would say my, my first dream, man, my first real dream, we're gonna go beyond Michael Jordan fantasies, was to be uh, an actor and a singer. And this came from my, I wanna say, yeah, high school. I, I discovered theater in high school and I fell in love with it right away. And from the time I did my first play rehearsal, I said right away, I want to have a rehearsal to go to every night for the rest of my life. That's how intoxicating it felt to work with other people and to go through a script, to perform, to tell a story. I fell in love right away. And so I, I thought for sure from the first time I did a play that this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And I stayed pretty focused all, all four years of high school. And when I graduated high school, I won the senior acting award for my high school and I actually went to college majoring in theater, and I, I auditioned and got a theater scholarship uh, at Western Michigan University, and I started off majoring in theater, man, and I thought that's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I'm going to be an actor, I, I, I'm, and I'm going to go get a freaking Academy Award and bring it back home to my high school drama teacher. Why we got to keep starting with the things that I didn't do? But, th but, but that's how it began, man. That was, that was the first like legit dream, like something I truly believed I was going to do. And I was taking a systematic approach to making it happen. So, and I met you right around the tail end of your time in college. When you, when you graduated, you, your first job, you immediately got a job at American Express, one of these financial advisor, you know, um, branches of or franchises of American Express in the Kalamazoo area. And you wore a suit every day and you were studying for all these various certifications to be able to do financial advising where mm -hmm. they hire a bunch of young, bright people. You go through training. A lot of them don't make the cut or don't pass the tests or get the certifications. And you were, mm -hmm. you were all in like when I, when in that phase, you always wore a suit, you were always studying. You hardly had time to hang out. You were all in going after that. You were excelling in that. But before I get to sort of where that led with this passion for acting, what made you take that job at American Express? Did you feel yeah. like you had to or like you couldn't turn it down or it'd be irresponsible to not get a job when there was an offer on the table or what, what led you to it? Yeah, it's funny, man. So, I mean, this gets at the, at the core of the weirdness of my journey. I've done lots of things that seem completely contradictory, but internally, they've just all made sense. And everything that I've ever done at that time, I felt like it was my calling, my religion to be doing. So, so in between getting a theater scholarship my freshman freshman year of college and then graduating and making my first job an advisor at American Express Financial Advisors I I actually had uh, let's say my second year of college 
based on my religious upbringing and my exposure to the religious, philosophical, cultural diversity you meet on a campus, um, I kind of had a philosophical crisis that resulted in me just doing a lot of philosophy. And my, my, my interest in theater kind of got supplanted by an interest in things like Christian apologetics, philosophical theology. And so I ended up changing my major halfway through school, just having a minor in theater. And I changed my major to philosophy and comparative religion because all I cared about was having an understanding of what I believe because I felt like, well, I mean, I grew up in a home that taught what you believe is literally a matter of life and death. And I wanted to put that first. So I ended up graduating college and I with a degree in theater. I abandoned the scholarship and I graduated with a degree in philosophy and comparative religion. And I was very happy with that. I felt like this is how I wanted to use my time. There's no point in acting or pursuing dreams if I don't know where I stand philosophically. And that's where I was. So now I now. Like- like, well, the good news is he's given up the theater thing. The bad news is <laughs> yes. he switched to philosophy. <laughs> yes. Yes. That was totally it, man. Um, and so n- n- now I graduate with this philosophy degree, which had a lot of personal value for me, but it wasn't the kind of degree. I mean, there aren't many of these kind anyway, but it wasn't the kind of degree where people were just chomping at the bit to hire me. <laughs> and so I, I went home after graduating school and I began to work with my dad doing a real estate apprenticeship with him while I just kind of wanted to think about what am I going to do next? Do I, do I go to Hollywood and pursue this acting thing? Well, I'm a little scared. I don't have any money. I'm not sure if I believe in myself. Ah, that's kind of what I want to do, but, but, but what what do I do? And so I'm, I'm at home going to work with my dad every day. And one day I come home and, um, my, my brother has a book on his desk called Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. Yeah. And, 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 I, so and I decided. so funny your brother, wait, because my brother read that book in his late teens and I, he would talk about it sometimes. And it's so funny because we've talked before about how our brothers have like a similar personality in some ways. Yep. That, that's yep. really funny. Okay, continue. Yep. They both troll us and inspire us in, <laughs> in identical ways. So... <laughs> So I picked up that book and I read it in one sitting. It felt like scales were falling from my eyes. He talked about the concept of financial literacy in a way that I never heard before. And when I read that, this this is going to be a theme in my life where I make a lot of dramatic decisions about what I want to do based (laughs) on some book I read or experience I had. And I read that book and I went, oh my gosh, I want more of this right here. Like whatever this is called, I want more of this. And so Um, You know, my dad has a lot of friends that are in the mortgaging industry that are financial planners. And so I just started to pick their brains when him and I would go to work together. And and there was a guy, an elder at the church I attended at that time, who actually was a financial planner. And I started to meet up with this guy for breakfast every other week. And I would just pick his brain, ask him a bunch of questions about financial literacy. He'd recommend books for me to read. I'd go and just inhale those books in a couple of weeks, come back with more questions. And so one day he says, hey, you kind of have a knack for this and you seem to be really interested. Have you ever thought about a career in financial planning? I think you'd be good at it. And and the idea seemed right to me. And at this point, I'm not worried that I'm never going to achieve my theater dreams. I'm not worried that time is slipping away from me or any of that because it just all seems so logical. I, I got to think about money. You know, I, 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 I got to have money for whatever I do. And, and I just felt like 
if I master financial literacy, if I become a financial planner, not only will I make money that can help me finance my own dreams and give me the freedom to pursue what I love, but I'll also know how to manage it one day, you know, when I'm wealthy. So I didn't see this as, you know, a competing interest. Um, and I'm like, yeah, let's do it. And so he actually made a, a connection between me and someone at American Express. I went in, I did an interview, they liked me, and I got hired. And, and, and right was, away- they, He was in Chicago, but the American Express, was that in Chicago as well? No, no. So, so he was in Kalamazoo, which oh. is where I graduated college. Okay. So because yep. you went back to work with your dad, but then you came back to Kalamazoo? Yep. So I interviewed for the job and everything while I was still living in Chicago. Gotcha. And once they hired me, uh, they were like, when can you start? I'm like, I'm moving next week. I'm moving right now. I'm ready. So uh, I went back to uh, to Kalamazoo and, and I started right away. And, and that's that's when you and I met when I was in yep. the process of studying to get those different financial licenses so I could begin working that job. It's so funny. This is This is a theme that will return, but you're one of those rare people. And I think this is a, a phenomenal trait to cultivate that every job you've ever had was never like for expediency sake or practice. It was always like a passion. Like, <laughs> oh, I want to really get into bartending because it sounds amazing. Or I want to go financial planning. This is awesome. Like <laughs> all the jobs, even though some of them don't seem to be in line with all the other things you, you love, you always seem to approach them like, this isn't just something I've got to do to make a little money in the meantime. This is something I'm going to throw myself into. Is that come naturally or did you deliberately have you sort of has that been a choice? No, that I, I've always been obsessively curious. And so whenever I do something, I can't just do it. I have to philosophize about it. I have to I have to think about what it means for human beings that we even require this kind of service or that we choose to do this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So when it came to bartending, for instance, um, I bartended and I made good money, but that wasn't enough. I wanted to understand, how, you know, like the history of it, like, like how did this even originate and why is this such a popular thing and why, why does the bartender play this kind of role and who comes up with these ideas for drinks and how many drinks are there? I've always enjoyed pursuing mastery. In fact, I would say I've always enjoyed the pursuit of mastery more than any particular subject or passion. It, you know, just being involved in that has always been interesting. But by the way, th this is interesting. You'll, you'll find this pretty funny. I remember a distinct time since you brought up bartending when a family member sat me down and expressed concern about me. They said, I'm worried about you because I think you're too curious for your own good. I'm, I'm looking at this bartending job that you're working at, and I know you have more to your life and your dreams than bartending, but you're so obsessively curious. You're on a path right now to become the best bartender in history because you're buying books on it. You're reading about it. You're like studying it. You're talking about moving to Vegas and working with the best bartenders in the world. And I, and I don't think that's where you want to ultimately be, but you're just so curious. You're never going to stop. And it, it's kind of funny to think about that, I, so, but I, I've never, yeah, I've never experienced that kind of worry. Two things on that. One, um, the number of things that I think you could have been the best in the world at that you ended up abandoning is, <laughs> is very high basketball, not being one of them. Um, <laughs> basketball you're like, that's the only one. one that I really wanted. Um, <laughs> yes. but the other thing is how, how many, and we'll get back to your, your timeline in a second. How many of those I'm worried about you <laughs> conversations did you have <laughs> in your early career? 
every, uh, every I, time you made a change? Yeah, probably for every job I had. Uh, yeah, because because I, you you could say that I I've treated all my jobs kind of religiously. I have always talked about whatever job I was at at the time, like with the sense of calling. Like, oh my gosh, it makes so much sense as to why I am here at this time doing this thing, and I would just be all in. I love it. So okay, so you you did the financial planning, you got the certifications. When did you leave that job, and why? So I worked that job for a little over a year. It took me about three, four months to get, you know, get all the licenses and so forth. And then I started the part where I began to recruit clients and work with them. And I really enjoyed it. I was pretty good at it. Um, I had a, I had a nice big natural network as well because of my father, a lot of people who trusted me because of him. And I was able to bypass a lot of the initial hurdles that younger advisors have to overcome in order to get clients. And just as things were kind of at their peak, I I remember there was like a two week period where I just felt those theater dreams festering. And for the first time, I experienced something like fear when it comes to running out of time and losing opportunity to pursue my dream. And I started to worry, uh uh-oh, I'm getting, I'm getting too good at this advising thing. I'm going to get stuck in Kalamazoo. I'm going to wake up one day and I'll have way too many clients that I'm committed to, to be able to make a crazy move, like go to LA. Um, I'm going to get stuck. I'm going to get stuck. And, and I, I got to go pursue this now. It's calling me. I don't want to regret this. And I had this intense fear of regret that I tried to shake. I kept to myself and I just couldn't shake it. And, and one day I, I made the decision that I was going to leave that position behind at American Express and that I was going to go for it. I was going to go to Hollywood and I was going to pursue my acting dreams. And so I, I went in to work one day and I talked with my district manager. He called in the, the vice president and they thought they could talk me out of it. And, and they tried to. They you know, told me how great it would be if I stayed there. And I was like, I, I got to do this, guys. I know it sounds crazy, but I have to do this. I have to do it. And, and I, I handled everything professionally. You know, I mean, they didn't want me to leave. I didn't just like not show up to work or be like, I'm quitting right now. I handle things professionally, but but I did leave. And that was a really tense point in my life because I had a lot of family members that were really proud of me for having that job. Not worried about you (laughs) for the first time. They were not worried about the eccentric, weird, curious, curious, idea loving kid that's all over the place. He's got a stable job. He's got a um you know, you know, one of those jobs that looks impressive. He's wearing a suit and tie. Come on, man. This was like it. My parents were so proud. Everybody at my dad's church was so proud. And when word hit the street that TK quit his job at American Express to go to Hollywood and act. Oh, man, the fit hit the shan. I, I remember some some tense, uncomfortable conversations with my mom and dad. It was a huge test. I, I was even, <laughs> the, the, one of the best parts was uh, I was dating a girl at the time and she just had my back with so many things. And so I went to her first thinking that this was going to be that scene in the movie where I come home and I go, I quit my job today. I'm, I'm going to follow a dream. And she'd be like, I'm so proud of you. But she was like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> what is wrong with you? And I was like, oh, no, the movie's lied to me. <laughs> like she was scared. I mean, she didn't abandon me, but she was really afraid. Like, oh, my gosh, it created all kinds of trust issues. Like, can I trust you to stick with something to to do what you're going to say? And why didn't you tell me ahead of time that you were going to do this? I mean, look what kind of position you're putting me in. And 
and, and, and pretty much everybody except I think you and a, and a friend that we had, Ben Angelo, and like three other people were like, hey, dude, go for it. Go for it. You know, go for it. Like, just make up your mind and go for it. Um, but it was a really hard time in my life because I got questioned a lot. And, and there, there was even a period where my parents and I, we didn't talk for like probably about six months because this decision put such a strain on things. So you didn't go to Hollywood right away. I didn't go to Hollywood right what away. What did you do instead? That's the craziest part. I got scared, man. So I got already, scared. You had already quit American Express to go mm -hmm. to Hollywood, but then with all this resistance, you kind of freaked out. And the idea was maybe I need to work and save up a little bit extra money first. Maybe I need to cultivate some feelers in Hollywood first or, or something to that effect. Yeah. You know, when you do things that everybody wants you to do, the risk of failure, the cost of failure isn't that great because if you fail, People say, well, you, you did what you needed to do, right? I mean, you know, life isn't perfect. But when you decide to do something that everybody says, that's crazy. You're stupid for doing that. You're going to regret it. It kind of raises the stakes a little bit. And you feel like I got to succeed, man. I can't afford to make a mistake. And so I let all of that talk and all of that concern get to my head. And I kind of tensed up a little bit and put a lot of pressure on myself to make sure that every duck, you know, was in a row. Prior to that, I had made up my mind. I already had a couple of friends that lived in LA. They had already given me the green light to come sleep on a couch until I could find a job and get on my own feet. I totally trusted them to back up their word, but I choked, man. I tensed up and I, I started to get really careful and I felt like, okay, um, maybe I should just take a few years, get everything together, get my questions answered. Maybe they're right. Maybe I need to save some money because once I go out there, I can't afford to fail. I can't afford to come back home and, and say this didn't work because it'll be the biggest I told you so story, you know, of my lifetime. And so, so, so you got, was that when you got a job at the assisted living facility? Yes. So I, I had about three, I had about three months worth of savings at that time. And I, I didn't work a job for three months. I just took a lot of walk, walks. I read a lot of books. I had a lot of conversations with mentors, did a lot of soul searching. And then I decided, okay, well, I'm running out of savings. I need to get a job and I need to spend some more time thinking about what I want to do while I work a job and save money. And so I had a theater friend at that time who I, I was in a play with. So I went back and I started doing community theater because I was still itching. So I, you know, itching for the action. So I started doing community theater, you know, on the side. And so, uh, a theater friend of mine, he had a job at an assisted living facility and he said, Hey man, this would be perfect for you. The pay is pretty decent. It's a night shift job, so you don't have to do a lot of work. You could have time to like study your scripts, to read books, and do a lot of the thinking that you love to do. And I was like, hook me up, man. And he gave me an intro, and uh, I got hired right away. And it was the kind of place where it was nearly all women who worked there. You had to work with a lot of residents where you had to do like a lot of heavy lifting. So they loved men. There, there were no men that... I guess, wanted to do this kind of job. And so they love seeing guys come in there. And they just loved me. I got hired right away. And, and I, I ended up working there for like a couple of years. And in one sense, it was one of the hardest, worst jobs I ever had. But in another sense, it was one of the best ever because it was like working at a monastery. I was alone all the time. It was quiet. And I had a lot of time to get to know my own mind during that period. But yeah, to the outside that, world, I was a big loser. Totally. That was the, the TK that I, 
that's when you got it started to get real weird in a good way, right? Because you had right, right. You'd be up all night and reading and studying, and you know you'd be like calling me and texting me like. Hey, I found this esoteric philosopher. I'm thinking about this. <laughs> it just let you dive into the ideas that you find so fascinating because you had this kind of, you've always loved, you know, getting it, like staying up late at night to do your study and research. So you're up at night, you got a lot of time to read and think. It was kind of an interesting, it was, it was almost like a monastic sort of experience, it seemed like. But while you were in that job, did you feel listless? Like, what am I doing? I'm, I'm neither going to Hollywood nor really building towards a, anything professional. Did you, did you feel like bad about yourself or were you like, this is exactly what I need to just think and take my time? It was more the latter. So I want, I, I want to, I want to use this as an opportunity to connect one of those weird dots that we talked about when I was at American express during the first few months where we were getting our licenses, we didn't have clients and we weren't required to do sales right away. And they would literally pay us to come to the office and spend like 10 hours a day just reading through books so that we could take our Series 7 tests, our Series 63 tests, and so forth. Before that, I had never, I, I didn't have any experience at spending that much time sitting in the same place reading. And that three months of doing that at American Express, it, it helped me discover this hidden ability to just read for hours and hours and hours and hours and retain what I read. Like that was kind of like my military boot camp for becoming a reader. And that was something that I never lost. I took that with me. So now that I'm at this assisted living facility, I don't have a lot of work to do. I'm, I'm working night shift and I'm alone and I'm working from 11 a.m. to 7. I would easily spend six hours a shift just pouring through books. And then I come home and I wouldn't go to sleep right away. I would read for another four to five hours. So this, this was a stage of my life where I was reading for about 10, 11 hours a day pretty easily. And I wasn't listless because my, my philosophy has always been if you don't know what you want to do with your life, then that's what you want to do with your life. You want to devote your life to figuring out what your purpose is or what your priorities are. And so at this time, I was not only exploring just a lot of philosophical ideas that catered to my curiosities, but I was also reading a lot of books about purpose, about calling, about career, um, about passion and all these types of things. And I was having a good time. I wasn't feeling like, oh, the world is getting away from me. My dreams are slipping away. I'm losing time. The entire time I'm reading these books thinking, I, while I am working hard, creating value in the marketplace, making money and providing myself – I'm spending a ridiculous amount of time clarifying my ideas about things like passion and purpose. So it didn't feel like a step back at all. So after that job, and but before you eventually did go to LA, you bartended, as we alluded to, and you got really into that. And you also had a job at a, uh, it was a national seminar group where you trained up and traveled around the country to go and speak at seminars and things like that, which was another one of those jobs that like, Hey, you could make a career out of this. It pays well. It's a, there's mm -hmm. a, a decent level of sort of prestige with it that people would say, Hey, that's a good professional job. Both of those were kind of chosen because you wanted to just make some more money before you went to LA or how, how did that happen? Why did you leave the, um, the assisted living job and, and kind of do those other things? 
so so there's actually a, a step in between all that. I left the assisted living facility job to accept a position as a uh, a grad assistant That's right. for the uh, philosophy program at Western Michigan. And, and and during this time where I'm reading all these books and having all these conversations, doing all this thinking, I mean, philosophically, I'm just on fire. I'm on fire, you know, no kids, no wife. And I'm just reading 12 hours a day. I'm on fire. And so I'm having a lot of good, great conversations with philosophy professors that I remain friends with. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, if I'm at this stage of my life where all I need to do is make money and have time to read and study, I can do that in a better way than being here. You know what I mean? Like I could, I could go back to academia and get paid to have an intimate relationship with ideas and do something that might be a little bit more respectable and might offer me some greater career flexibility and things like that. And so I, I inquired into that and I, I ended up, you know, um, applying to grad school. I ended up getting the Thurgood Marshall Fellowship and I spent a year studying philosophy at the grad program and working as a TA. Uh, in fact, <laughs> in fact, uh, th there was some moments where you helped me grade some papers for an intro to philosophy course I was teaching. Yeah, that was when I started to get real depressed about higher education. <laughs> I remember, I, I remember we were going to hang out one night. You, you call me up. You're like, Hey, let's hang out. And I said, man, I've got this stack of papers that I need to grade. You were like, bring them over. We'll, we'll knock them out together. And yeah, I so remember, I, brought... I remember I said, am I allowed to grade them on grammar as well? And you're like, no, man, we don't have time for that. It's the ideas alone. <laughs> <laughs> so, it... so, yeah, 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 go ahead, go ahead. So you're on this track to basically become a, an academic philosopher. Um, yes. But like so many of your tracks before that everyone started to finally feel comfortable. Okay. He's done with his wandering. He's done. He's finally settled in. Okay. Okay. We can live with this. Um, you abandoned this one as well. And this time it was to go audition for American Idol, right? Yes. I put it all at risk. I'm in the middle of philosophy grad program and everybody's like, all right, we thought the American Express thing was good, but TK's always been kind of a nerdy academic -y type guy. So this kind of makes sense. If the story ends here, this this will be a good story and you know we can reconcile the past with it all. Everybody's thinking that. And then all of a sudden, hey everybody, uh, in contrast to the advice given to me by my philosophy professors, I'm gonna go audition for American Idol and I'm not just gonna go audition, I'm gonna go about it in a way that totally burns the academic bridge and makes it difficult for me to come back. I'm gonna go for American Idol. Um, and, and, and by the and, way, you, if you want that whole story in detail, it is a phenomenal story. It's one of the chapters in Why Haven't You Read This Book, which you can find on Amazon. Um, TK's chapter in there, Why Haven't You Auditioned for American Idol? And he tells the whole story about making this decision. And it's it's really awesome, inspiring stuff. So so go get the, the lowdown from, from Why Haven't You Read This Book. Check it out. Mitchell Earl did a reading of it that, that was so moving. In fact, uh, my, my my friend Paige Kennedy, the, the actor that I mentioned in that story, and he'll come up again in this talk. Uh, he listened to it and 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 almost cried. He was like, "Man, I this did. Was I so cried, moving. dude. Yeah, I did. Yeah. <laughs> but not because you're inspiring. I just want you to know that. <laughs> right. I don't, right. To, I don't want to give you that kind of power. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So after auditioning for American Idol and failing, I I came back with with this renewed sense of 
yeah, I, I, I got from the, from the American Idol failure what I didn't have when I first left American Express, and that was a loss of my fear from of failure. American fail. Express to American Idol. A great yes. Story. Yeah, we got it. We got to work on the title here. Okay, that's, the name of my, that's the name of my bestseller, man. That's the name of my bestseller. Um, but, you know, what I didn't have at the time when I left American Express was the courage to face the resistance and go after what I wanted without a f- fear of failure. When I went and auditioned for American Idol and I actually failed, I realized that when you experience failure as a physical reality, it's so much less intimidating than when you experience failure as a theory. And I was like, this is what I was afraid of? This is what I was afraid of? Oh, man. I, I, I was like Will Smith and I, Robot. I was like, oh, hell no. <laughs> Isn't that <laughs> so, Will Smith in like every movie? <laughs> yeah, Will Smith in every single movie. Will Smith <laughs> and Martin Lawrence and everything that they do. Oh, hell no. Uh, and so at that point, it was like, I'm ready for the world. Whatever I decide I want to do, I can do it without fear because I can handle this thing called failure. And so at that point, I started to think, how can I get out of grad school? I don't want to be a professor. I don't want to be in academia. I, I want to be mobile. I want to free myself up so that I'm not hitched to living in Kalamazoo or any specific place. I can go where I, wherever I need to be, and I can start really pursuing this thing like I want to do. And so I started looking for work that could give me that flexibility so that I could, I could get to California and do my thing. And at that time... I had some connections who worked with uh, Skillpath Seminars and National Seminar Group. Both of these were corporate or, or still are um, corporate training uh, companies. And, and basically they put on a lot of continuing education uh, seminars and workshops for professionals. And, and, and I was introduced to someone there and I, I did an audition with them because I had that background in finance. Um, they really liked me because most of the trainers wanted to do fun stuff like motivation talks and, and most of them couldn't do any talks on technical things, but I had that technical background and, and they were like, well, well, can you teach people about financial statements? Can you teach people like how to compute business ratios? And I was like, not only can I do that, but I can do what no other accountant can do. And they're like, what's that? Tell a story, tell a joke, (laughs) you know, be interesting, be alive. And, and, and so I started doing that, man, and I did that for about a two-year period. This undersells the story, by the way, because though you had you know, done your American Express stuff, that's not the same as business accounting. And so you said, you know, I remember you said to me, yeah, I looked at all the things and the ones you get paid the most for are like accounting continuing ed. And I'm like, yeah, but isn't that where you're going and running seminars where you're training professional accountants at these companies? And you're like, yeah. I'm like, do you know how? You're like, nope. And you said, but I told them, sign me up for all those. And you bought all these accounting books, textbooks, everything. And you were calling my brother, who's an accountant. And I remember one day we were driving somewhere in the car and, uh, and you guys were on the phone and he was, you were, he was explaining to you the difference between LIFO and FIFO accounting and you were like <laughs> breaking down the notes in detail. And you literally just learned this stuff in like a couple months and then went out and are, and are doing seminars for national seminar group, these continuing education for people who have been accountants at, in corporations for like 10, 20 years. And they're all giving you like the highest reviews ever and saying this was the best <laughs> seminar they've ever had. Oh. It was the most amazing thing. I remember Levi dropping off his his CPA book, that really thick book yeah. that he had to take, uh, that he had to uh, study to get his license. And 
what was so great about it is it was the same size as the book I had to go through for my series seven. And once again, because of that American Express experience, I looked at that book and I was like, okay, if I just study this for 10 hours a day for the next three weeks, I'll finish it. And that's exactly what I did. I would go to this coffee shop called Rocket Star Cafe and, and they were 24 hours at the time. I even, re- I even knew the owner, a young guy named Clayton, and I would have great talks with him. I would, I would get in there by 10 p.m. every night and I would stay there deep into the morning, you know, 6, 7 a.m. And, and I would just read that accounting book and I just kept going through it until I could pretty much explain most of the concepts there. So yeah, I, I, I committed myself to taking those gigs before I was ready. And because of my financial background, this is the great thing. They just saw finance and they're like, oh yeah, finance, economics, money, it's all the same, right? Because that's what people think. So they gave me the opportunity based on my experience and my ability to talk about some things, but then I, I hustled my butt off and studied in every bit of free time I had. And I, and I took the gig and I, I did really well. And I got a chance to, to travel. I was in like a, a different state every week. Um, I got a chance to cover most of the states in our country, meet a ton of really cool people, have a lot of cool experiences. And one of the most memorable um, parts of my life, you know, just get it, you know, um, satisfying my travel itch and just learning a ton and making a lot of cool connections in the business world. And all the while, did you see that as temporary after this American Idol thing, you knew you wanted to get back out to Hollywood or was this like, hey, maybe I could settle into to being a speaker? I, I knew that I wanted to get back to Hollywood, but it still wasn't clear at this point. So I'm, I'm doing the corporate training thing. And at this point, while I'm doing the corporate training thing, I'm, I'm always at home on the weekends. Basically, the way it worked is I would travel for two weeks out of every month. And then I would have the other two weeks off and I would spend that two weeks off studying a lot, but I wanted to make more money. I wanted something else to do. And this is the point where I got into bartending. Um, Those two weeks off where I was home every month, that's when I started bartending. And that began to really satisfy a lot of the performance aspects of me, right? Because when you're a, a waiter or a bartender, that's all you're doing is you're performing, you're connecting with people and stuff like that. So I'm doing that for a, for a time, and it's while I'm bartending and corporate training that there's a point where I say to myself, okay, it's time, TK. You've done enough soul searching. You've done enough experimenting. It's time to go. You're, uh, you're getting to that point where you don't want to put this off for another year. Let's go, man. Let's go to California. And, and I, just, I just made a mental decision that I'm going to go, and I told my parents, I said, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come home to Chicago. I'm still living in Kalamazoo at this time. I said, I'm going to come home to Chicago. I'm going to stay with you guys for a few months. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna go to uh, go to California and I'm going to do my thing. And at this point, they were like, <laughs> whatever, man. <laughs> <laughs> After so many times, they finally got numb to it. Do you yeah, think they were that- like, it doesn't matter what you do at this so- point. So, you know, if, if you look from the outside and say, okay, you knew that you wanted to get out to LA, you had already sacrificed a lot of different potential career options for this. The bartending thing was just to make money. Was it a waste for you to just dive all in and start like studying and researching bartending and trying to get your craft, you know, mastered? Like, why would you do that? Why would you put all that time into that? Was that just because you were curious? Uh, was that wasteful or did that end up being valuable for you uh, later in unexpected ways? So I have never learned anything 
with the kind of scarcity mindset that says, oh, but I may study this and never use it. I've never thought like that. Uh, in fact, one of my one of my theater professors, Joan Harrington, said the key to being a great actor is being a great person. And the more you invest in becoming a, you know, an intelligent person, a passionate person, a person who's truly alive, the more that's going to translate into your acting. And, and she would she would often warn against people who didn't know anything other than theater. She would always say things like the world doesn't need any more actors who only know about taking improv classes. The world needs actors who have worked real jobs. The world needs actors who know what it's like to get their heart broken. The world needs actors who know what it's like to do something that has nothing to do with theater. And so I always saw the pursuit of other experiences as something that made me a fuller human being, as something that made me more mature, as more valuable. And, and even to this day, I take pride in, in knowing that I know what it's like to work at Applebee's. I'm so glad that I have that in my history and that I'm not one of those guys that can't relate to, to the stress of working in a restaurant. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I, I've never feared that anything I've studied or anything I've done would, would be something that wouldn't relate to something that I would do in the future. I've always felt like no matter what you're doing in life, you're going to want to draw from the insights, the metaphors, the experiences, and the connections you formed and whatever you did prior to that. So, I, I, you know, during, in real time, I was always having fun and I always had a sense of when the time is right, I'm going to know it and I'm always going to do what I want to do. And I never did anything with the sense of being a victim about it. Like, oh, I have to work at this bartending job because some kind of power is lording over me. I knew that I was free to, to do whatever I wanted to do. But I also knew that it was important to me to do it with certain conditions in place. And I've always worked hard to create those conditions. And so I've had fun in the meantime. So you spent a couple months with your family in Chicago. And then you, you headed out to L.A. And I so, remember you packed up your little car. I remember thinking, this car is not going to make it across the, <laughs> across yeah, right. the country. <laughs> Didn't you have like a – your car had like a St. Louis Rams like – license plate or something yeah, it was like some used car that i i, I bought from some yeah, dude like 500 bucks or whatever so weird yeah but it, it apparently made it so you you get out to la oh but, but, but by, by the way let, let's explain this because i have had some pretty flattering sounding jobs right like american express and the corporate training teaching financial analysis but i've always been broke always <laughs> and, and 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 that's because no matter what job i've had I've always prioritized above everything else, having lots of free time to read, and and I only worked enough to and, meet all of my finance like skittles and M and M's and stuff. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's kind, it's kind of, it's kind of weird because I've always been the kind of guy who would easily work like 60, 70 hours a week and never complained about working hard. And yet at the same time, I've always prioritized having the kinds of jobs that were very compatible with me wanting to stay up late and me wanting to read all the time. So I've, I've never really optimized, no matter how much I've learned about financial literacy, never really optimized um, making a lot of money. I just always wanted to be in a, in a right place to either read or pursue my dreams. So I'm, I'm driving around in this buggy and I'm just happy and content, bartender you know, at Applebee's, working corporate trainer half the month, and I decide that I'm going to move to Chicago for three months, there are two interesting thing that, things that happen. One is I fall in love with the woman that is now my wife right before I move. Like literally, 
because I, I was staying at your place mm-hmm. for like a two, three week period or something like that before I moved to Chicago because my lease at the apartment th- that I was at ended. And you watched that relationship form before <laughs> your very eyes. And and we literally started dating, <laughs> I think, the day before I moved to Chicago. Um, it, it, it was the ultimate shit test from the universe. Like, uh, I'm, I'm going to stop you from going. Like, I'm going to send you the woman of your dreams, the woman that you're eventually going to marry. But I knew that I wanted to go to L.A. and your this wasn't going to stop. The whole world. My best friend in the world. <laughs> so, so I, I've made fun of TK for saying that before because it sounds cheesy to me. Um, so, so, so I go home to Chicago and, and there's another job here. For the three months that I'm home, I don't just right. stay there. I, I, I go get a job at, at my parents' favorite restaurant uh, in Westmont, Illinois. It's called Papado, Papado Seafood Kitchen. It's, it's a higher end restaurant, always busy, good menu prices. And I worked there and I I just worked almost every day while I was at home for those three months and I would just save whatever money I made. And here's my favorite story from working at Papado. When I first started working there, they had all the new employees fill out this little uh, survey type thing. And, and, And one of the questions on it was, where do you see yourself in 10 years? And I answered that question. I was a man on a mission. I answered that question in Hollywood holding an Academy Award in my hand. And, and and they put everyone's answers with their pictures up in the back. And so it's like, meet the new serving staff. <laughs> and so so one day I'm working and uh, it's really busy in the kitchen and, and, and the manager calls me in the kitchen and he says, hey, I, I need you to sweep up the floors. And I'm like, all right. And so I start sweeping in the kitchen and, and there's this older guy who looks at me with that broom in my hand and he just starts laughing at me. And I'm like, why is this dude laughing at me? Like, we all work here. There's no shame in pushing a broom. And then he looks at me and he says, the steps that we take to get to Hollywood. <laughs> and, and in that moment, it was I looked at him and I'm like, yeah, man. Yeah, this is going to be part of my story. This is going to be a good part of the movie right here. You know? But, but I, I did that for a few months. And um, about before that time ended, actually, I received a phone call from a lifelong friend of mine, uh, an actor here in Hollywood now. His name's Paige Kennedy. And Paige said, hey, man, uh, I'm losing my roommate. He needs to move. uh, And I've got this spot open now. I know you weren't planning on coming out here for a few months, but I could use a roommate now. Can you make it happen now? And I said, I'm going to make it happen now. I'm ready. And um, I told my management staff there, and they were all like, oh, my gosh, seriously? This is what you're going to do? Seriously? And they were all happy for me. And one of my managers promised me that if I ever make it on TV, he's going to put my headshot, you know, on the wall of the restaurant. And they were just all really hyped up. And the whole restaurant, they threw me a party. They were excited for me. And, uh, and I, wrapped, I wrapped my time up there. I put in my two weeks. And then I went and I moved to L.A., man. And, and this is where the crazy really begins. Yeah. So uh, I had intended to focus most of the time on your production companies and Hollywood tech entertainment startup. Um, have we been so talking much, about the boring stuff? There was so no, we have, cause there's so much good stuff and I just sort of forgotten all the stuff in there. So, okay. So you get out to Hollywood and you just to make money, you start, um, like everybody who goes out to Hollywood, right? You start, bartending, we're, we're skipping right? the or, first day. Or, we're or skipping, waiting. we're skipping the first day. Was that, was that when you ended up getting on who are you smarter than a fifth grader? No, but the first day that I get there, it's like a, it took me like four days to get there. The first day that I get there, I pull up my roommate, Paige Kennedy, who's a working actor in Hollywood. 
him and a friend helped you me. You said that un- already. Now you sound desperate. Now I sound desperate. Now you right. sound like you're trying to name drag. Uh, Paige <laughs> Kennedy, perhaps you've heard of him. Uh, yeah, perhaps you heard of him. IMDb. He, he, Good he's my out. friend. He's my friend. I know him. I know good him. Friends. Yeah, you're you know. good friends. <laughs> he, know, he knows Jamie Foxx. Uh, <laughs> he's worked with Colin Farrell. Uh, but anyway, so Paige comes out and, and him and another friend, they help me unpack my bags. And the first thing that Paige says to me is, all right, man, you're coming to a party with me. I, I've, I've got some actors that I want you to be because it's, it's pretty early in the day. And he's like, and you're going to an audition with me as well because you need to see how these things work. So the first day and for that entire first week, I spend that with Paige. I don't even have time to look for a job because Paige is dragging me around to commercial auditions that he's doing. And at this time, he was on the TV show Weeds. And he was he was working on the set of that. So he would bring me to set. And that's when I met Mary Louise Parker and some of the other actors on the show. That's when I met um, you know, one of the producers on Weeds and became, you know, good friends with with uh one of the producers. And Right away, I had this crazy, weird exposure to Hollywood because I had a friend that was working on these shows and I had a chance to ask all of these actors and producers these questions. So, um, and, and, being, and being TK, I was joking, you, you'd, you'd get introduced to like, you know, the, the most powerful producer in Hollywood or some great actor and you'd be so excited. And instead of like, okay, how can I build my professional network? You'd be like, hey, so tell me, what's the last philosophy book you read? You'd like get into a conversation <laughs> about Nietzsche or something. Or, or, uh, or Osho with Omar Epps. <laughs> yeah, and they'd, all, and they'd all love you and be like, hey, come over to my house to talk philosophy. But like they would never think of you as someone that they should, you know, c- could help out with your career because you'd always just focus on the ideas. I, I remember you giving me this advice when, when I moved out there. You said, okay, look, dude, you know that you're so crazy that you're going to meet someone that has the power to change your life. I'm just begging you to try to think about your interactions with them as something that you can get something out of. If you meet, <laughs> if you meet Usher, don't just talk about philosophy the whole time. And, uh, and, and it's funny because I was at a party at, at Marlon Wayans's place and, um, uh, I met Omar Epps there and we spent about an hour and a half talking about Osho and, and just talking about philosophy. So anyway, anyway, anyway. So I'm here in Hollywood. I have that crazy first week. And then the second week, I, I said, I'm going to go out and go get a job. I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, do what all the actors do. I'm going to look for a serving or a bartending job because that's what gives you the flexibility to be able to do auditions and all that kind of stuff. And Paige told me exactly where to go. He tells me what restaurant I should go to because lots of producers frequent that place. It, it's in an area called Century City. Uh, which is like, you know, like Fox Studios and all that. And so I go there and on my first day, I, I get a job. But but something even stranger happens. As I'm at the mall leaving the interview that I was at, I run into a lady who uh, comes up to me and says, hey, what do you do? And, you know, I, I told her that I had just moved out there and what I was up to. And she says, I want you to audition for Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? And I'm like, what? Uh, no, not, no, not me. Uh, I wouldn't do that. that. Isn't that the show that embarrasses people over being stupid? And she says, no, 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 no. You don't understand it at all. And she kind of explained the show to me. And, uh, and I'm like, ah, I don't know about that. I'm sorry. I'm going to pass. And she says, look, kid, I'm trying to help you out. Okay? I'm trying to help you out. You come on the show. You might be able to win some money. And it can help you out with whatever you're trying to do in life. And she says, you just seem like the kind of person that people might want to root for. She's like, why don't you just give it a shot? 
And so I, I said, give me your card. Give me your card and I'll think about it. And you could tell she was kind of put off and insulted by my skepticism. <laughs> and so when I get home, I show the card to Paige and I tell him about it. He says, dude. You, you don't she, understand how important Jeff Foxworthy was to white people back then. I, I did not understand. <laughs> <laughs> so the lady was legit, man. And, and Paige and another actor friend, they were like, man, you got to do this. This is crazy that this happened. This doesn't just happen, man. Just go do it. And so I, I went through the whole process and and the producers called me back and they said, we want you on the show. I And, and I, I think I tell some of that story in, our, in the chapter of our book as well. But I met Jeff Foxworthy. I was on national TV. I had a hell of a time. And, and the funniest thing about it all is I'm kind of like LeBron James now. There's nothing I can do that's going to cause my legacy to be questioned. I will always be successful now, no matter how much of a loser I am from this point on, because I appeared on national TV on an episode of Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? And I could literally make a billion dollars and nothing will make my friends and family from back home more proud than seeing me on Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? <laughs> that is the hypnotic power of television. I even had a guy come up to me at a family wedding and he was one of my biggest haters, man. When I left American Express to go out to Hollywood, he hated on me so hard. And he walks up to me and he's all serious. He's like, I respect you, man. I respect you. <laughs> because when you say you're going to do something, you do it. And I'm like, dude, all I did was show up on one episode of Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? I haven't made it yet. I haven't made it. But don't tell anybody back home in I, West All I remember is that you couldn't remember how many sides a cube had. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, cube. Uh, let me see. Ice, there's one ice cube. Uh, yeah, yeah, man. I, I, I choked. I, I got so nervous, man. It was crazy. <laughs> so you did the show. You won. You won fifty grand uh, pre-tax, man. Which was which was great for uh, you know helping you make your way out there. And you had a good stretch of I don't know what it was a year or something where. You actually got an agent. You were going to auditions. I remember you got real close. You were one of the last few people for a McDonald's commercial campaign for a couple. Yep. You know, you got real close to some stuff working on the acting thing while you're meeting all these cool people doing your restaurant gigs, still going to events with Paige. But at some point, which came first, Bulaka or the production company? Uh, Bulaka came first. Okay. So tell me how you're working on trying to get your acting career going. You're doing the restaurant thing. How did you end up starting with two other guys, this, this entertainment slash tech startup company? So as I'm going to all these events with Paige and, and I'm getting the chance to meet all of these heroes that I see on TV, I'm, I'm super quick about going up to these people and being like, hey, got any advice for someone that wants to make it in the industry? And everybody was really cool and friendly. But everything that everyone said basically – it was about production. It was about taking ownership of your work. There wasn't a single person that was like, take an acting class, become a better actor. So for instance, Marlon Wayans said to me, don't wait for work, create the work. When I met a uh, screenwriter and, and director, John Singleton, he looked at me and said, write your own shit. I mean, everybody that I met talked to me like that. They would say things like, don't wait to be discovered. Don't just rely on showing up to auditions and having someone pick you. You got to find a way to choose yourself. The business side is where the power is. That, I and, remember and I, this. This was another one of those moments where you were like, everything in my life has been leading up to this moment when you had the epiphany like, ah, I, I assumed when I thought Hollywood, all I could think about was acting. But now I see the business side and nobody who comes out to Hollywood with their dream thinks about the business side of producing a film. 
I've got some background with some, you know, finance accounting stuff. Like I can get in on the production and business end of things. I remember that was like a big epiphany that you had. Yeah. And, and it wasn't just like a means to an end. I wasn't thinking if I can succeed on the business side, then maybe I can put myself in the movies. I, I became genuinely fascinated with the business side. And I had the opportunity because of the, the friends that I was making to sometimes sit on set and hang out with the producers and watch what the coming together of a show looked like from their vantage point. And it was really interesting. It, it was an art form in itself. So I had, I had, I made that mental shift gradually over a period of a few months and I was itching for the business side. And then one day, one of Paige's producer friends had a get together. Uh, I went with Paige, a bunch of us are hanging out and I meet a guy there named Tom who was really uh, interested in both. He was a screenwriter and he was an entrepreneur and he was really interested in, um, uh, taking advantage of, of, of the way in which social media, social media was evolving. And he introduced me to a buddy of his named Mark. And both of those guys went on to become my business partners for my first startup, which was called Bulaka. Mark had this idea for a, for a site called Bulaka.com. And what Bulaka basically was, was it was a tool that kind of combined the elements of, of let's say dating sites like match.com uh, with with casting wizard sites like LA Casting or other talent search sites. And, and it was a tool that would allow the different playmakers in the production process to be able to find each other based on talent, based on project, connect with each other, and then collaborate. Uh, and the goal was to help people connect with the talent they needed to move a project idea from concept to completion. And uh, it, it was, was kind of like, it was, it was kind of ahead of its, time in many ways and something that we still haven't fully seen, but it's definitely happening now, which the idea, I remember I, my wife and I spent a week in LA and I did an interview with you and Tom and Mark to, to write an article. I was like, I'm going to write an article. I've never written like a journalistic article. I'm going to do this. I'm going to get it published somewhere. Nobody mm -hmm. published it. So you guys ended up publishing it on your own with, on Bulaka.com. But I remember the way that, you know, and they were framing to me like, look, if you're a, you know, film producer or an indie film producer and you need you know, a, a location for a certain type of shoot, you know, you post up that I need this and somebody else says, I've got this. And someone else says, I'm a, I'm an actor or I'm a screenwriter. I'm looking for this kind of project. And someone else says, you know, it's kind of like this jobs board collaboration. And their whole thing was everyone came to Hollywood because it had some of these conditions, the weather locations to film, all these things that were really important mm -hmm. back in the day. But now with the internet, with how much cheaper, good camera technology is, filmmaking can be done anywhere location independent but that that network the sort of the the grapevine so to speak of knowing who to talk to and whatever that's the part that people outside of hollywood don't have access to and we're basically putting hollywood on the web we're putting that network these the sort of connections of who does who can do who if you need an extra if you need a script writer whatever and like making it this sort of much more decentralized thing it was a really cool cool vision Absolutely. We, we, were, we were aiming at nothing short of decentralizing the, uh, the, the process of film production. And, and it was interesting, too, because as a result of working on this project, and, and I was still working as a bartender at this time, I was meeting a lot of producers. And now my conversations are changing. I'm going from a guy who's just happy to meet people and asking them questions about how to be successful 
to being a guy that has a specific project that he's working on and he's looking for investors, he's looking for contributors and so forth. And so now the conversation starts changing and I start asking for those opportunities. And that led to some pretty interesting, interesting conversations. But this was the stage of my life that I will call rejection because I got the dream meetings that many people would die to have. I remember talking to executives at Lionsgate, executives at Disney, executives at Paramount. Um, and, and because of some of the friends that I had made, I got a lot of introductions to some very influential people. And I had a lot of people who said, I'll hear you out. And they would let me come to their office and I put together a presentation for them and I pitched them. Um, and man, uh, you know, I, I just remember one one executive producer <laughs> at Disney saying to me, kid, I like you so much, but there's no way in hell I'm going to give you 50 grand. And I, and I just remember feeling my heart just like <laughs> sink into my stomach. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard some variation of that. And I, I would have some people say to me things like, nah, I'm not going to support this. I've spent the last 20 years working on building my Rolodex. The Rolodex is the, mo is the most powerful thing I have. Why would I just give you the power to take that away? I had some people be very honest like that. And then I had some people just be like, nah, I'm not really interested. Nah, I'm not really interested. I even had some people, uh, it was kind of a rude awakening. I even had some people promise money. I had some people say, all right, I'm going to invest this much. You can pick the checkup on this day. And I would show up and they wouldn't be there. And I would call. And they wouldn't pick up the phone. And it took me a long time to, to like get it. I was so naive. Like, but he said he was going to invest. He said he was going to invest. And, and, and there, was, there was a friend of mine who would say, TK, TK, it's Hollywood. Okay. It's Hollywood. I, I know you're from the Midwest. And in the Midwest, maybe when people say, um, when people don't like you, they just say things like, I don't like you. It's, but in Hollywood. Like that uh, Was that Jerry Maguire or whatever? The guy's like, I don't need a contract. My word is my bond. That's the world that we come from, you know? <laughs> yeah, I got I to gotta, I gotta pause for a second. I got to ask you something. Yeah, so we've go been for going it. for about an hour. And the story of Bulaka, there's a lot in there and some amazing stories, some details about some of these um, meetings and things like that. And then the production company, some of the really interesting ups and downs there. Um, you know, and then uh, you had another another really interesting job with like a dog sitting company and then Praxis, would you rather power on through and keep going or should we break and make this a two-parter and take a little bit more time on those sort of three last three items that I mentioned? Let's break and let's make it a two-parter, man. I think so because I really, there's so much good stuff that and Bulaka is probably a, a part of your story that I've heard you talk about the least but there's a lot of really interesting stuff in there that I want to dig into. So let's do that. That'll be a teaser. So we, we're, we're up to the point in TK's life where he's still trying to do the acting thing, doing the, doing the, uh, that sounds so condescending, trying to do his little <laughs> acting thing, um, working at the restaurant, but he's, he's focused now on the business side of things led to this startup and you are trying to launch this tech slash entertainment decentralized Hollywood thing. And, uh, we'll, we'll dive into that next episode. Looking forward to it. That was weird. You just waited. You paused for a really long time before you acknowledged. I, I was practicing my acting skills. It was like, okay, uh, give it a three-second beat and then be like, looking forward to it. It was kind of like a Vin Diesel type thing. Well, you always told me that the most important part about acting was not blinking. 
but people can't see that. So <laughs> that's like the one thing I remember that. And um, I said that I said not. Blinking. Yeah. Yeah. You said, yeah. The th- you said, you're like, watch all the great actors. Just start watching. They don't blink. They never I don't blink. Even know, I don't even know if that's true. Yeah. And so now I do. And it's true. Like you'll notice in a really powerful scenes and stuff. Actors blink way less than normal people in everyday life because <laughs> you told me that the eyes are what connect you to them. And the, the more they're open, the more chance they have to like convey whatever emotion. And if they're blinking and closed a lot, it, it like disrupts that. You might've just made it up. I don't know. <laughs> that, and I, I remember the, the terminology choices instead of like, oh, that's cool. That guy did that. Like, oh, that's an interesting choice. Like a person would lean against a wall and you'd be like, hmm, what do you think about that choice he just made? Oh yeah, I'm like, man. I'm like, what are the guy leaning against the wall? You're like, that's an, that's an interesting choice. That's dope. <laughs> That's deep right there. Like, like you really? see how you see how that guy got angry? We all get angry, but look at the choice he made. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Watching movies with you uh when you were deep into the the art of acting, which was really all the time. Uh two equal parts annoying and entertaining. So all right. Let's let's call it, man, and we will we will come back and do uh next episode. We will do part two to the story of TK Coleman from American Express to American Idol and beyond. <laughs> That's such a great title. All right, later, man. Peace.